listeners, thank you for tuning in. I'm Leanne, and I'm a librarian at Bexley Public Library and your host for the BPL podcast. Once again, if you tuned in with us last time, a quick announcement that the BPL podcast is going on a brief hiatus for the summer, but don't worry, I'll be working to bring you excellent stories and guests from our community and beyond um, in the meantime, and I'll be back in the late summer or early fall, I don't want to put a date to it, don't want to hold myself to that, um, with brand new episodes. I already have a few lined up, um, and they're going to be really excellent, so stay subscribed to the podcast in your podcast app so you don't miss any updates. If you have any ideas, um, if you've heard our podcast and you're like, oh, I know this person who's doing this really cool thing in Bexley, or I have a connection to Pulitzer Prize winning author Colson Whitehead, and we can get him on the pod, um, please reach out to me, email me at podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at bexleylibrary.org with any of your ideas for topics or guests um, that you're really interested in hearing about and that you think would make a great topic for the BPL podcast. Before our break, before our little hiatus for the summer, um, I wanted to leave you listeners with an all-star guest um, and a very special interview today. I am so excited to welcome Connie Schultz to the BPL podcast. Connie Schultz is a Pulitzer Prize-winning, nationally syndicated columnist for Creators Syndicate, and this week for USA Today, and professional in residence at Kent State University School of Journalism. She is the author of three books published by Random House, Life Happens and Other Avoidable Truths, a collection of essays, and His Lovely Wife, a memoir about her husband Sherrod Brown's successful 2006 race for the U.S. Senate, and a novel, The Daughters of Erie Town, released in June 2020, and a New York Times bestseller. She and her husband have four grown children and eight grandchildren. They live in Cleveland, Ohio, with their rescue dogs, Franklin and Walter. So hello, Connie. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thanks, Leanne. It's great to be here. We, I, I read your bio, but for anyone who might not be familiar with you and your work, do you mind um, introducing yourself? Because you do so much, I feel like it's hard to kind of put you into a box. Well, that's very kind of you. Um, huh. I guess I would just say I grew up in Ashtabula, Ohio, the northeast corner of the state. I'm a working class girl, first in my family to go to college, which has informed my work throughout my decades as a journalist. I'm um a newspaper columnist. I've been that for almost 19 years now, and I'm a professional in residence at my alma mater in the journalism school there at Kent State, and I'm the author of three books, most recently the novel, The Daughters of Irito, and I'm working on my next novel now. And I'm very excited to ask you about that <laughs> coming Thank up. Thank you. You you said you worked um, you worked as a journalist or are working as a journalist and you worked um, for nearly twenty years at the Cleveland Plain Dealer um, yeah. and you eventually got your own column which you have said was your dream job and then in two thousand five congratulations still you know nearly fifteen years <laughs> on you won the the Pulitzer Prize for commentary for your and I quote pungent columns that provided a voice for the underdog and the underprivileged and so all of your work until now has been, um, was nonfiction until the Daughters right. of Erie Town. Um, right. And so for our listeners who may not be familiar, the Daughters of Erie Town focuses on a multi-generational story um, of women and their families in a small blue collar Ohio town. And you, you said you grew up in Ashtabula and you were the first to go um, to college in your family. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, that that was a central plot point in the Daughters of Erie Town. Um, can you talk about sort of your switch from writing um, like solely nonfiction, writing as a journalist and writing um, your commentary for your columns and then switching to fiction? 
Um, and did you meet, did you go into writing Daughters of Erie Town thinking I'm going to write something that really is familiar to my family's story? Um, did that help? Did that hinder? What was that like? That transition and and did you mean to write something that seems so familiar to your own story? Well, it's familiar in some ways. It's not as familiar as some have suggested, but I understand why they would say that. And certainly, there. I mean, if you're the first in your family to go to college and you grew up in a small working class town, and you've got a small working class town in the novel. Uh, I did come up with its own name. My um, editor advised me early on, don't call it Ashtabula because everybody living there will tell you what you got wrong. So I could make it my own town in any way I wanted to. Certainly the seeds of um, the novel are shared by the roots of my family tree, but then it diverges pretty dramatically. And there are people who never existed, of course, who become main characters in my book. Um, as far as tr making the big transition to writing fiction, it was not originally my idea. It was my editor, Kate Medina at Random House, um, who's just, I, I love her for so many different reasons. But one of them is she just, she reached out to me the day after I won the Pulitzer and would not let me go until I agreed to do a, agreed with Random House to do a collection of my uh, columns and essays, which was my first book. Um, but from the very beginning, she thought I had it in me to write fiction. And she just kept encouraging me and encouraging me until I finally was willing to make the leap. I mean, one of the biggest differences with fiction writing is when I'm writing a feature story or writing a column and I feel like I don't have enough yet, I can just, I pick up my phone, I, I, I go through my contacts, I send emails, I, I can interview other people. You can't do that. When you're, I mean, you could do it for the historical <laughs> stuff. And certainly mm -hmm. I needed to learn a lot more about utility workers, for example. Mm -hmm. So because one of the main characters, Brooke McGinty, is a utility worker, as was my dad. Right. Um, but I did, you know, I had a, really a childhood perspective of utility workers. I had a lot to learn. But mm -hmm. most of it, you just got to sit with the story and you got to figure out what's next. And I ended up really loving that part of it. I'm, I, I think I was, I know I was very intimidated in the beginning because I have read fiction virtually all of my life. As soon as I could start reading, I was reading fiction, right? We read children's books that are fiction. And then I was an early reader um, and so devoted still to the, my, the library of my childhood, Ashtabula's public library, Wonderful. <laughs> um, which is one of my reasons for being so devoted to public libraries. Thank you and so much. You Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it took a while for me to believe that I could possibly do this. And um, I'm really glad I did it. I'm glad I tried the first time. And I'm glad it debuted on the New York Times bestseller list. And Incredible. as we're speaking, I think it's in its at least fifth printing now. And the paperback is coming out in June. So I'm now hard at work on my second novel. And the working title for that is Because You Asked. Okay, well, um, so I have, so when you, you said you were really encouraged by your editor to write fiction, yes. did you know that you wanted to write about Ohio and write about these stories? Or was that something that she encouraged? And then are you able to talk about because you asked? Um, and, and what sure. that is kind of going to be, you know, you know, you obviously didn't jump far from, you know, when you won the Pulitzer, it's your pungent columns that provided a voice for the underdog and the underprivileged. Um, you're coming out of Ohio, you know, you didn't write a fantasy novel about dragons in Middle Earth, you know, it, it stuck, right. you know, to this, you know, realistic fiction, literary, literary fiction. Was that something that your editor encouraged? Or was that, you know, the stories that you wanted to keep telling? Well, yes and yes. So that's an astute observation on your part. When Kate Medina first encouraged me to start writing fiction, one of the things she said to me is the working class is really underrepresented in modern literature. And I agreed with her. I mean, wow. most of the time, the working class is a prop, right? They're, you gotta, yeah. they're often uh, 
uneducated doesn't mean unintelligent, right. but that's how they can come across often in, in fiction. So I agreed with her on that. I just wasn't sure in the beginning that that's where I could make a difference. As it turns out, it felt it was my familiar. I really, it, with everything that comes with it, the racism is in the novel because of where you can't, some readers um, online, especially, or in a few emails, why did you have to bring racism into it? And I, well, because I'm writing about white working class people in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and moving forward. So you can't ignore it. But I also know that um, one of the underlying themes of in my head for the book was our roots are our beginnings, but they're not our excuses. And I wanted to show the tension between Sam McGinty, the daughter, and her father, Brick McGinty, especially on issues of race. Wow. So it was uh, really rewarding to be able to explore that in ways and make up these people as mm-hmm. they're having these challenges, certainly drawing from some experiences in my own life. But this novel is very different in so many ways from my own childhood. So Because You Asked is the title of the next book. And um, I love photography. I always have. And I have many, many framed photos on my wall. And I started thinking about the mantra is a picture tells a thousand stories. But the other thing I always think about is that no single picture can tell the full story behind that photo. Absolutely. And I started imagining a grandmother who runs a bookstore and is a granddaughter in her early 20s who's come to live with her for a little while because she's life's been complicated, right? Okay. And at one point, her granddaughter's looking at the wall of photos, and she sees so much happiness in these photos, and she just can't imagine this happy life for herself and tells her grandmother. And her grandmother says, are you under the impression that a photo ever tells the whole story of any moment in time? And her granddaughter just flippantly points to the wedding picture of her grandparents and said, well, this one's pretty easy. You met grandpa. You fell in love. You got married. And the grandmother just puts her hand on her gently on her shoulder and says, not my first choice. And the granddaughters. And so the agreement is the granddaughter. I I haven't settled yet on how many pictures. I'll have that figured out by the end of summer. Um, The granddaughter is allowed to pick a certain number of photos with the promise that the grandmother would tell her the full story no matter what. And one of the underlying themes of that is women so seldom tell their stories Um, and their stories are. And this grandmother thinks there's not really that much to her life. She mm-hmm. was lucky to start in, it's going to be in Erie Town, I believe. And she's got this bookstore going. The extended multiverse of Erie Town. Yeah. You heard it here first, everyone. <laughs> We're starting just, a universe. <laughs> and Ellie McGinty may show up to buy a book at one point. Oh, one of the characters, okay. main characters from that. But I wanted to um, take the readers along with this exploration as well, this interior journey that she starts to take. Because as she starts telling the more the sometimes quite complicated stories, of her life, she realizes that her life, I hope she realizes, we'll see if we can get her there, um, that her life is richer than she could ever have imagined. And it's more complicated than most anyone knows, certainly her granddaughter who adores her, right? Mm -hmm. And I just thought this is a story, I love doing cross-generational stories. I certainly enjoyed it with Erie Town. And I I want to continue doing that because I spend so much time with young people. uh, First of all, being Mm -hmm. a, Mm -hmm. you know, teaching at the journalism school, and also through my husband, Jared Brown's campaigns, it's always full of young people, right, who know more than we do about everything. I don't, I don't mean that sarcastically. They really do. So um, I like bringing in, I, I love those interactions myself, mm-hmm. and I want to show them in the work. I mean, it makes it interesting for me to pursue as a novelist. I There's something there, too, that um, novels will sometimes do that are about this 
relationship between a younger person and an older person, whether they're related or not, that has to do with simply storytelling. And there's something kind of meta about that where it's, you know, you're reading a story and it's about the importance of stories and sharing our stories with our grandchildren or the younger people to carry that on. It's that idea of like memory, which I think is really cool. I love reading stories about that. Is the, Will the book be structured based on the photographs? I think, as, well, we have this whole life going on with her in the bookstore, okay, right? And okay. trying to keep it afloat in a small town. And the reason okay. she wanted is she knew that working class people like to read too. And they were tired of having to drive to Cleveland or Erie to get a book, right? Nice. So there's that <laughs> whole thing. But yeah, I think it is going to be structured around the photographs because okay. then we're going to go back in time with each one. Um, and I agree with you. You know, part of what has motivated me to write this is I, I give a lot of public speeches. And when I'm in rooms full of women, no matter how large the group, inevitably at some point, it seems right to ask them how many of you ever share your stories? I mean, how many of you think even the people who supposedly know you best, do they even know why you're here today at this event? Mm -hmm. Do they know why you believe in this cause or what? Mm -hmm. And women's eyes, many of them will tear up. Mm -hmm. And that tells me they're not telling anyone that they don't feel entitled even that they're waiting for the invitation, which I have to say most men don't wait for before they start mm -hmm. talking about themselves. And right. women tend to do that. So I, I, I guess that's part of what has compelled me to do this is that, you know, the main character of this book is one of those women who thinks nobody would care about her life story, but then her granddaughter shows an interest and she feels a re and the other thing that has stayed with me is when younger women such as yourself have interviewed me about the daughters of Erie town, mm -hmm. I was struck by how many young women would tell me that in reading it, um, and, and, and this ran across, it, it wasn't just white readers. It wasn't um, even just readers born in this country who were interviewing me, women who were interviewing me, mm -hmm. they would go back to their mothers and their grandmothers and wanted to start asking them more about their lives because it never occurred to them how challenging their lives were and what wow. it was like to be, you know, a woman in America in those mm -hmm. various decades. I hadn't anticipated that. Yeah. It, but it was certainly a wonderful, wonderful thing to learn from them to hear that that was going on too. And it feels like fighting that, um, you know, smarter people than me have probably said this more eloquently, but the it almost feels like we lose something as women when we don't share those stories. You know, sometimes I feel like, why didn't anyone tell me that, you know, whether it's, you know, giving birth or whatever it is, like, why didn't women talk about this? You know, why haven't we, right. why didn't we know this? And it feels like something that almost like that the patriarchy has taken from us as a way to kind of take away power or to say like, things are fine. There aren't problems, right. you know, or to, to do that. Well, I want to I want to interject here because you said smarter people than you and you strike me as very bright. Oh, and, I, I, and I hope you keep this in the interview because I want to say this, that I hear so many women, including young women such as yourself, immediately start to qualify their opinions. I teach opinion writing as one of my courses because I'm a columnist, uh -oh. right? <laughs> and one of the things I'm constantly trying to encourage young women to do is to understand that we do need to hear your voice. Uh, we do need to hear young women's voices. It's one of the reasons I was quoting young women who had interviewed me, because that really sat with me um, mm. and helped me understand exactly what you were just saying, that women are often discouraged uh, mm -hmm. overtly or subtly from even talking in crowded yes. rooms or rooms with men. And we're often, uh, men will attempt to shut us down. I certainly, having you know spent many years in a newsroom, understand that. But I also understand that this happens only with our permission. And mm -hmm. I would love one of our mantras to be permission denied. 
that uh, I just wrote in a column last week. Uh, one of the things I did learn from my mother's generation, uh, it wasn't an intentional lesson often, but my but my mom made clear I wasn't going to volunteer for invisibility after I turned 50. I um, watched your 2016 TED Talk <laughs> where um, <laughs> Thank you, you. you do. Yes. Um, and I love that. Not volunteering for invisibility, I think, is it's so powerful. Well, thank um, you. And as you know, from that TED Talk, I had a lot of I had some really strong women who are friends who paved that way for me with their own ideas for their lives and their own careers. I mean, we're allowed to have ambition. And one of the things mm -hmm. I wanted to make clear in the novel, Sam is certainly more ambitious openly than her mother about mm -hmm. her career. Mm -hmm. But Ellie, by the end of that novel, is starting to understand that ambition comes in many forms. And however mm -hmm. she chooses to embrace it is really great for her. It's not something to be apologizing for. And that's, it's, again, just such a powerful message. And I'm glad that we so quickly got to talking about women. And it sounds like you really are, it sounds like, especially with, um, because you asked the novel that's coming up, and correct me if I'm wrong, it almost sounds like you are writing almost to your audience. Because, you know, to put it bluntly, you have become an icon, certainly in Ohio, but for women in Ohio and probably wor maybe worldwide across the country. But like, I remember the first time that I heard your name, I was working at the Akron Art Museum and my boss at the time, it was during the 2012 presidential election. And um, my boss at the time was, you know, she was just talking and she was like, oh, Connie Schultz is the best. She's better than all these men. Like she should run for office. And I was like, oh, like, I'm cool. I know who that, like, who, who is that, you know? And she was like, oh my God. And she was so upset. She was like, you don't know who, and she was oh, like, here, here is her work, you know, like you need to educate yourself. And I was like, you're right. Um, and so since then, you know, I, I was excited and I texted my library group chat. I was like, hey, I'm going to get to talk to Connie Schultz. And I mean, just blew up. And and then again, in, in your 2016 TED Talk, even a woman over 50, you talk about how when you started um, your column for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, you would get women who you could tell, and I'm paraphrasing here, but were who were nervous and, and had recorded or like not recorded, but who had written you a message that they would read off yes, after hours. Yep. So how do, how do I want to phrase this? What do you feel? Is it about your work that speaks to so many women? And then you have been in the public spotlight, both for yourself and then being married to a U.S. senator for so long. How how does it feel? You know, how does it feel to have almost this like veneration? How do you deal with that? Is there pressure with those parasocial relationships? And, and how do you kind of navigate that? Boy, that is a complicated series of questions. And first of all, I would never identify myself as an icon. Um, I'm so well, icons wouldn't. I'm so. <laughs> oh, you're, you're throwing my language right back at me. You're very good. You are <laughs> very so good. As I often say, heroes lay no claim to the title when we're talking about people in public life, right? Or especially people who you Absolutely. don't. I mean, anybody tries to identify themselves as heroic, I just tune them out. I say, okay, get next. Out right, mm -hmm. right. Cult of <laughs> personality. Get out of here. Right, right, yeah. right. I am at that phase of my career. I mean, I'm certainly thinking big still and doing new things, as you know. <laughs> Um, and I'm working on my, my first novel came out when I was 62, right? So that's the year my mother, I love that. that's the age at which my mother died at 62. So I'm very aware of the gift of this. But I'm at that point in my career where I'm, I need to be, and I would hope many women of my generation are mindful of this, so that we need to carry as we climb. And that means helping women who are coming up um, the ranks, who are younger, much younger than us often. It doesn't mean we have to step aside, but we must make room. For women such as yourself, for example, right, which is why I immediately agreed to do this, because mm -hmm. I love the thought of being interviewed by a young, smart, 
uh, incredibly talented young woman working for a public library in Ohio, right? I mean, wow. why wouldn't I do that? That's what we need to be doing over and over again, because I learn from you always. And I hope I'm telegraphing also my support for you. Absolutely. That That's Absolutely. what we need to be doing more of. So I must say some of the women um, I mentioned as friends in that TED Talk are very much my, they keep me crowded. <laughs> had tethered <laughs> to the reality of my otherwise very normal life. They would never mm -hmm. let me get away with behaving like somebody who deserves to be venerated, right? So that's a real, I, I highly recommend always keeping those friends. These are friends I had when I was a single mom, most of them <laughs> long before any of this happened mm -hmm. in my life. Um, and, uh, although I don't believe it's impossible to make new friends. I have some friends who I've not known as long, but are certainly part of that inner circle now of friends. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really important to look at one's career and one's life like this, that I'm not, what helped me the most is to understand early that I'm not competing against other people for this career, but especially other women, I'm mm -hmm. competing against an earlier version of myself that I, I want to keep getting better, right? Like winning the Pulitzer, you get a lot of attention for that, but yeah, no kidding. <laughs> it, you do, but ultimately <laughs> it felt like, okay, that's the marker now and I've got to earn it. I got to keep doing what I'm doing. And I got to earn that prize over and over again. That's how I think you need to look at it, right? I am a very lucky person. Mm -hmm. I have had some incredible breaks in my career being this, you know, I've just wrote this recently. You never stop being a single mother once you were, I was a single mom for a decade. You never stop coming from the working class when you, you, know, you had less, but worried more. Um, that informs my work. It informs my life. I'm really glad to be tethered. So those parts of my history, because I think it helps me stay open to learning from others. I hope. Wow. I mean, you'll have plenty of people tell me it's, I mean, it, it's kind of funny. Well, it, it's almost always men who want me to retire or they think I should. And I always just make clear, I'm not going to volunteer for their version of me. Um, but you keep, you know, have fun, boys, keep doing what you're going to do. But I'm just going to, this is me ignoring you as yeah. I launch the next phase of my life. Wow. It's, and as you're talking, it's just the wisdom and the irony of it. When I was looking through, you know, your presence online, it's, it does not, it's not curated. It's not this like, yeah. you know, um, cultivated. And, and that's truly no shade to the people who do cultivate you know, an online presence, like this is the world we live in. But the irony of it is that, yeah, you can't, you can't run from your, from your icon, like status. And it is all of these things that you're saying are, are so wonderful. And I'm like, man, this is what, you know, some of these Instagram sort of like, I hesitate to say like the Glennon Doyle types you may have met, or I don't know, you know, who are, who are projecting this stuff. I'm like, this is, it's that, it's just so true. It just feels so true. Well, and that's you. the irony of, of the whole thing is you're like, I'm just being me and wanting other women to succeed, period. Well, one of the reasons, I mean, I certainly have respect for Glennon Doyle. I would never, and I know you do too. It's, it's, yes. But you're right. We have different presence, a different mm -hmm. kind of presence. Mm -hmm. For me, early on, social media was a way to directly interact with readers without having to deal with the online cesspool of comments on our yes. own news site, right? And yeah. over time, it's become one of the ways to keep me grounded. I mean, I like interacting with readers and I like letting them know, at least you, know, awesome. you try, you can't do it all the time. You can't yeah. read every single thing, but you want to let them know. And I highly recommend this for people who are trying to increase their social media following. Mm. Let people know you care what they're thinking. Let them know that you've seen something and respond occasionally if they have questions, right? Mm -hmm. It's, um, like you can't see it. I, I don't, well, maybe if I leaned over it, but I have a first <laughs> amendment pillow 
on my rocking chair that I've had for a number of years now. Whenever I start getting a lot of questions after I've been on television, for example, I put up the Etsy link where I got it because it's a woman who designs them, right? You, you can do these little things that let people know you are paying attention um, and that you, but you also want to share the wealth, right? Yes. Why not drive more business to a woman? That's that's wonderful. I love doing that sort of thing. So in case any of our listeners um, have missed this throughout this interview, um, your husband is United States Senator Sherrod Brown, the senior senator from Ohio. He is? Oh my God, that explains so <laughs> what? much. What? Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and he has been in politics, it looks like, you know, I glanced at his Wikipedia page since time immemorial. Yes, um, all his but- adult life. Public servant. Mm, yes. Um, and it, it's interesting because I definitely would consider both of you public servants, obviously, in, in different ways. Oh, thank you. Um, but, you know, I was much more interested in reading uh, Michelle's biography than I was Barack's, although, you know, his is also interesting, just very long. Um, yeah. But so, <laughs> like, how is he going to have more? Um, but so you have written about being uh, his lovely wife in your mm. book and his lovely wife, um, which came out in 2007. But since then, um, or or previously to then, what have been some of the biggest mistakes, lessons learned, surprises um, that have come from being an ever more prominent U.S. senator's wife? Because, um, you know, it seems like he just continues to be more and more prominent. Well, sure, because now he's chairman of the Banking and Housing and Urban Affairs Committee, which is huge for him, and I couldn't be prouder of him. Um, early in our marriage, particularly after he won the Senate race in 2006, mm-hmm. I spent too much time worrying about proving to the naysayers that I could still do what I do. And uh, certainly in my profession, I needed to do some of that. I needed to establish this in my opinions. I'm not going to resign. I'm not going to retire. I mean, I was only in my 50s then. It was mostly men in my profession who were claiming that this would be an obstacle. You're, you're more traditional political writers. And mm-hmm. I think I spent too much time worrying about that. I, I don't give it a second thought now. Oh, anybody wow. okay. who knows me, anybody. I mean, I always quote my dad when I first finally became a columnist in my mid 40s. I called him and it was the same editor who had said I didn't have it in me to be a columnist, had finally agreed to let me be a columnist. And I <laughs> called my dad and he said, finally, you're going to get paid for what you've been throwing around for free for 45 years. He couldn't believe mm-hmm. I got paid for it. I couldn't either. I still can't believe I get paid to share my opinion. Part of it was after um, Sherrod won the Senate, I had to make a decision. Was I going to keep becoming a, be a, being a columnist to try to grow as a columnist? Mm-hmm. And I thought I and I heard from some women in my profession who had given up careers because of their of marrying people in public life. And I thought I really I want there to be a different route. I want to pave a different road if I possibly can. So down the road, at least some women might be able to say, yes, but she did this Mm -hmm. and she survived and she was able to thrive. Yeah, Yeah. I was very aware. And I don't mean to overstate my influence. I was just very aware of the precedent I would set. And I had already won the Pulitzer Prize. So that, you know, that is not your typical game plan to win it, take a leave of absence so your husband can run for the Senate and then resign. Right. Right. I just thought I'm not going to squander the privilege of this. And so that's why I kept going. And I would have spent less time worrying about that if I could go back in time. But I'm hoping that saying that will help others find their way a little more quickly. Yeah. And then those people's opinions, I'm sure looking back, you're like, why did I even? Well, yeah. And the thing is, there's always there will always be men who tell you you can't do what you what you're doing. I mean, that's Uh, the other thing. Always. (laughs) And, Absolutely. You know, so why spend much time worrying about that as opposed to making sure they're not getting in your way? 
That's that's wonderful. Really quickly, so I am not a journalist, obviously. Um, what you transitioned then? So when you were coming up in your career journalism for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, you switched over to, and now you are a columnist, um, and you were a columnist for a long time. What is sharing your opinion to the broader public? How do you choose, is, like, what's the method, I guess, um, briefly, to choosing what opinions you are going to share, and then crafting that message, knowing that you know, readers read opinion columns to create their own opinions. So that seems like a lot of power. Is there any like nugget of kind of you choose certain things based on something or yeah, what what piques well, your interest? That's a great question. Uh, and I think the best way to answer is, is to maybe explain a little bit what I tell my students in opinion writing class. Trust that the things you really care about, other readers are going to care about too. And build on that. So, for example, I care a great deal about racism and race relations in this country. And mm -hmm. I have all through my career in journalism and certainly as a columnist, I have I care deeply about the LGBTQ community. Uh, both those categories I just told you, my attitude about that, what drives my work is you're either an ally all the time or you're not an ally. And I'm straight, white. Right. And so that's how I have to do that. Um, mm -hmm. I care about women. Uh, I never think of it as just women's issues because every issue is a woman's issue. We care about so many different things. We're not a monolith. So if you stay consistent and you know your own biases and your own values, so you know what biases you have so they don't cloud your judgment when you're reporting columns, because I do have to report. Um, and you have to know your values so you know what lines you won't cross for an employer, uh, for a source, right? You, it really is fully understanding who you are and what you want to be and what you want to um I don't think of it as Sharon and I talk a lot about this, both of us in our work. I don't think about what I'm fighting against. I think about who I'm fighting for and who can I use this voice for that, that however amplified my voice may be. So who am I going to fight for? Um, I will certainly throw in personal columns. My, I had great advice from my editor, Stuart Warner, years ago. He said, you know, you're a strong cup of coffee. Some people are never going to agree with your politics. But if you talk about other things in your life as well, they, it, like if nothing gets readers faster going than talking about your, your dog, right? Talk about pets. But yeah, and wouldn't right. you rather be a strong cup of coffee than a weak one? I mean, come well, on. that's right. He meant it as great. Know. I mean, he was Good. so yeah. supportive of me, but he was right. I have very mm -hmm. strong views. That doesn't mean we don't have things in common if you don't agree with me politically. That's why I write about family and I write about love and I write about pets. And, I, and certainly I've written a lot about COVID. Uh, in the last mm -hmm. year and a half of this pandemic. So there, there's always so much to write about, but you really need to be true to yourself. And mm -hmm. the other thing I tell my students always, do not be that voice on the mountaintop pointing your finger, telling everybody if they were just as smart as you are, they'd be okay. Take them along with you on the journey of living life and learning as you go. It's a much easier way to reach people. That's incredible. You must be an incredible. These students are lucky. I hope they know how lucky they are. <laughs> I don't think they're feeling it this week as they're turning oh. in their final portfolio. Oh. But uh, I love my students. I love uh, my students. And I love watching them grow, especially in opinion, Ryan, because they've been through th four years of a program that understandably mm -hmm. was telling them, You're, we don't want your opinions. You got to learn how right. to report. You gotta, and then they come into my classroom and my every week, what's up? tell me what you think. Yeah. What's your opinion it on seems this? like an especially vulnerable place as a journalist, because you don't you kind of take away that, you know, we're reporting the facts, we're reporting the story. And then it's kind of like, okay, but now I'm also putting myself out there. Well, it is. Um, but the thing is, increasingly at very young, much younger ages than when I got into the profession, they're being asked to blog, they're being told to have attitude, right? 
which means their opinion. So how do they do this? How do they do it in a responsible way? Well, I report on facts all the time. And then I tell you what I think about them mm-hmm. and why I think some things should change, right? Or why I yeah. think this is wrong. And it, and it's really unfair to entire swaths of America, people in America. Um, immigration, for example, a huge issue that I've written about for a number of years and separating children from their parents at the border. And what do we think about this? That's a fact that was happening. What do I think about it? What do I think Americans should do about it? Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. Before you go, I like to ask all of our guests, what are you reading, watching, listening to, or playing right now that you are excited about that you want to share with our listeners? I'm very careful about saying what I mean, because I always have some friends who get upset that I don't mention their books, but oh, I am. Okay. It, but I, here's what I will do. Let me hold on. I got to call up my Kindle um, because I'm reading a couple of things I I really am loving. So I guess I'm breaking my rule here. That's um, hey, it's a library, you know. <laughs> it is a library. I'm reading Paula McLean's When the Stars Go Dark because I'll be interviewing oh, yes. her next week. I'm reading um, a new book uh, by David Michaels on Eleanor Roosevelt which uh, I thought I'd read everything there is to read about Eleanor Roosevelt, but I'm loving this. And and a friend had recommended it because in part, what Eleanor Roosevelt did in the last decades of her life, right? She never stopped. And my friend thought that might speak to me a little bit and she was right. So so those are a couple of things I'm reading right now. And music, it really depends on the day, right? It's Motown, unfailingly at some point. Springsteen okay. always, but when I'm cooking, I love to listen to Frank Sinatra. That's weird to a lot of wow. people, but there you are. I don't know. There's something about being love able it. to dance to the, the 40s and 50s music that I, you know, so it's whatever mood I'm in. I love, Great. but my kids keep sending me stuff for me to listen to for the first time ever. And I love doing that as well. So there you are. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Is there anything else you would like our listeners to know about or that you would like to plug? Like if you have a personal website or a newsletter or anything no, at all would, that you want to plug? I would like to plug Leanne at Bexley Public Library because <laughs> this was a great interview. Oh and my gosh. Thank you. Thank you for being such an informed interviewer. My gosh, you just made my day. So thank you. Thank you. You've made my whole week or more. Who knows? Um, Thank you so much for tuning into the BPL podcast today, listeners. I hope you enjoyed. I'm your host, Leanne, and I've been speaking with writer and Ohio icon, Connie Schultz. Register for the BPL Virtual Book Club on July 7th, 2021, where we will be discussing Connie Schultz's book, The Daughters of Erie Town. Find out more about the Bexley Public Library, including upcoming events at our website, www.bexleylibrary.org, or across social media platforms at Bexley Library. If you liked what you heard today, please help us grow by telling a friend. Tell a friend, tell a partner, tell your spouse, tell your kids, tell your wife, tell anybody that you know. Tell someone walking down the street, hey, my library has this podcast. It's called the BPL Podcast. Check it out. Rate us five stars and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps the algorithms. Um, Listen to us on Spotify. Email me with your comments, questions, suggestions at podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at bexleylibrary.org. Thanks for listening.